For the past few weeks, we've been working through some passages in Matthew, um, the same passages every week. We've just been bouncing in and out of them for the different ideas they contain. I'm going to share them with you again. The first one that we've been looking at is from Matthew chapter 7. And at the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has just given what we call the Sermon on the Mount, a, a strong message of a new identity he wants his followers to have. And at the end of that message of the new identity, the new responsibility, kind of the new way of looking at God's will in this world, Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And we've covered that particular passage many times, but if we keep reading, Jesus gives us the warning. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The warning is the flip side of the promise. If we're people who hear Jesus' words and live them out, then it's like we're building our lives on a firm foundation that even when the storms come, we can stand strong and secure. But if we hear Jesus' words and we don't do anything about them, we just let them go in one ear and out the other, we, we let us think about them, we feel good about them, but we don't actually do anything with them. We're like the person who builds his house on sand. And when the storms come, the house just gets washed away. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in my life. The truth of the matter is that people who do what Jesus says are the people who, when the hard times come, and believe me, they will come, when the hard times come, they have a much more solid foundation underneath their feet. The people who just Think the things, Jesus says. Hear the things, feel the things, think the things. Then when the hard times come, the theory they have in their mind, the theology they have in their mind, doesn't stand up against the hardship they're facing with their lives. And they fall away. I don't want us to be that kind of person. I don't want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be individuals who build our lives on a firm foundation. So we've been covering that ground heavily this last month. But there's this other passage where Jesus uses the metaphor of rock, and I'll remind you of it again. It's in Matthew 16. Jesus says this, Simon Peter says to Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is one of those times when Simon says the right thing at the right time. It's rare, I know, but Jesus recognizes that it's not Peter who said it, it's actually the Father in heaven who gave Peter those words. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of jo Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. See, once again, God gets the credit for the good thing that happens, even though it came out of Peter's mouth. And I tell you, Jesus says, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, this revelation that God gave to you is the thing that I'm going to build my church on. And it's going to be such a strong foundation that the church will be victorious against even the forces of death itself. Death being the metaphor Jesus is meaning there when he uses the phrase gates of Hades. But here's the thing. We've been paying attention for the past couple of, of weeks about this paying attention to this rock idea, what we need to do to build our lives on a rock. And I got to admit to you, for the last two years, I have felt like even though I've been trying to live out the life of Jesus as much as I possibly can, even though I've been trying to follow him and honor him and do the things that he has called me to do, it has been so difficult. We've all been faced with a storm, a, a two and a half year, maybe even longer, depending on your, your perspective, storm. And now here we come to the first Sunday in February, which for the past 14 years, our church has done Commitment Sunday on this Sunday. 
Even last year, we were doing live stream and we decided we would just continue on with our tradition and have Commitment Sunday on this first Sunday of February. We were just going to do it anyway and we did it virtually. And, and listen, last year I had a blast and I think you had a blast. I went back and I watched some of our videos from our vision dinner that was a remote, you know, virtual vision dinner. And then some of the videos from our Commitment Sunday. And I was thoroughly excited. I thought last year was a whole lot of fun and you probably had a lot of fun. But listen, for a second year in a row, I'm just like, why in the world? If we're trying to build our lives on Jesus, why are we facing such hardships and frustrations? I just want to remind you, Jesus didn't promise comfort. Both houses get the storm. It's just one house stands and the other one doesn't. Our journey as a church, our journey as individuals is not to follow the path of least resistance and follow the path of greatest comfort. Our journey as a family of people together is to follow the path of endurance and stability and strength and to do it together with each other. And so, This year, once again, we're facing a storm kind of situation. I mean, literally this week with the snow. And hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to be able to move beyond this in just a little bit. But I wanted to make sure we took this time. I wanted to postpone our Commitment Sunday to next month so that we could do it in person. But I also wanted us to take this time to just really dig in more deeply to what it means for us to be making this commitment to God and to each other. I said for the past couple of weeks that I was going to take the four basic foundational building blocks of this rock foundation and tie them together for us. And so today I want to do that. Today I want to look at those four foundational blocks. The first one is this. We said just a few weeks ago that our first rock foundation building block is I will build my life on a Jesus understanding of God's word. This comes out of the thing Jesus said to Peter when he said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And so I want to build my life on a Jesus-centered foundation, a Jesus-centered understanding of God's word. The second principle we looked at was this. I will embrace the hard work of transformation to become more like Jesus. You see, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, listen, you have to put this stuff into practice. You have to actually do the work of building your house on this rock. But then, you know, if you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that process of building is difficult. It requires humility. It requires living a life of purity. It requires living a life of relationship, healthy relationships with other people. It requires living a life of submission and sacrifice. It's an incredibly difficult path to walk. But Jesus said, that's the path. Walking on that path is the pathway to this stability, this foundation that he is calling us to. And so I will embrace the hard work of transformation to become more like Jesus. The third lesson we learned was just a couple weeks ago, and it was about what church membership really is. Church membership in a victorious church means embracing the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, through centuries, there have been people who called themselves church members, and there have been organizations that called themselves churches. But the thing that Jesus was building was a collection of people, an organization of people who would live out the Jesus life. Immediately after he said he would build his church, his very next concept that he taught was that he was going to Jerusalem to be killed. Immediately after he self-identified as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, he then said, and I'm going to give my life for others. See, following Jesus in his organization means walking the same path he walked, being willing to endure the same kind of suffering and hardship and sacrifice that he did. And so membership in a victorious church, the kind of church that Jesus is building, involves embracing the sacrifice of Jesus his sacrifice for me, and then I sacrifice for others, which leads us to the principle we looked at last week. The church should be opening heaven and bringing forgiveness to people. 
Jesus never created his church to be an organization that told the world how they were wrong. He never created his church to be an organization that pointed its fingers at every single sin that was out there in the world. He created his organization to be a group of people who did what he did. And when Jesus pointed his fingers, he pointed his fingers at the religious folk. And when Jesus opened wide his arms, he opened his arms to the people who were sinners. And he invited everybody, whether they were ready to repent or not, to enter into the life of forgiveness. Some of them entered in and repented. Some of them just made a journey through and moved on. But Jesus, his life was all about opening heaven to people and bringing forgiveness to them. These are the four principles we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Our mission as a church, we've tried to kind of simplify them all into the one basic simple phrase where we just say we're trying to help people follow Jesus. Uh, Literally, that's all we're trying to do as a church. We're trying to help other people, and we ourselves are trying to be people who are just simply following Jesus, and that means like walking his path. Now, in order to make that happen, what I want to do is I want to get real practical for us today. These four principles that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks are principles that show up over and over and over again in the Bible. They are repeatedly shown up in the Bible. There there are four Bible words for them that we've adopted. We've also adopted four metaphorical words for them. And there's a framework that I want to show you today to help you understand how these things all fit together. But these four principles, even though we've picked them up out of the book of Matthew primarily for this last month, they show up all over in the Bible, including in the Old Testament and definitely in the New Testament. And so I want to show you. The way we phrase these things, the the way we talk about these things, is to first put up a cross. So let's start there. We start with the symbol of the cross. And the cross, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, has two components to it, a vertical component and a horizontal component. And the vertical component of the cross should remind us that we, the people who are at the foot of the cross, are looking up at our Savior, we should always remind ourselves that our relationship is first and foremost an upward one with God. God is above us. He is over us. We are under him. We are below him. We look up to him and we submit ourselves to him. There's this dual relationship, the vertical relationship that we say, our relationship with God. It's an individual relationship It's me as an individual recognizing that God owns me. He surpasses me. He is supreme above me. His word has authority over my words. His ways have authority over my ways. God is above, I am under. The word submit literally means to place yourself underneath someone else. That's the vertical aspect of the cross. The cross diagram we use also as a horizontal component. And the horizontal component is our relationships with other people. The way God has designed us to interact with the other people in this world. And he has designed us to be people of relationship, to be people of love. The problem is that we get so distracted by different aspects of things that there are two ways to relate to the world that we'll be talking about today. I want to give you the four Bible words, and then I'm going to give you our four metaphorical words, and then we're going to close out with our membership covenant as a church, the thing that we commit to each other each year, the thing that in a month we will be actually signing papers to commit one one to another for this commitment again. But let's start out with the Bible words. The first Bible word we're going to look at is the word worship. That is the word that we put at the top of the cross because it is the primary way that we relate to God. We look up and we recognize God is above us. He is worth more than us. In fact, he is worth more than anything else. He is above everything else. And the right word for that is worship. Worship doesn't mean music. Worship doesn't mean showing up at church. Worship means any single time in my life I live in a way, with my words, my attitudes, my thoughts, I live in a way that demonstrates God is worth more to me than anything else. When God is worth more than anything else, I am offering him my worship. I am offering him my, of, my 
assessment of his worth. That's what worship really means. That's where the word came from. And so anytime I acknowledge that God is number one with my words, my attitudes, my actions, my behaviors, whatever, anytime I acknowledge God is number one, that qualifies as worship. You in the privacy of your own home, opening up your Bible and spending some time with God, that's worship. You talking to your coworker saying, listen, I learned something this morning while I was reading my Bible. That's worship. That's not trying to convince someone else that you know everything about God. That's just you saying, hey, I learned something. God's pretty cool. I want to talk about him. Similar to what you might be doing next week with the Super Bowl. I, I don't know. There's a lot of cheering and, and uh, ascribing worth to human beings in sporting events or maybe this week with the, with the Olympics. I don't know. But we need to ascribe worth to God. Number two, the second one that we look at is earth, is, excuse me, is the growth at the bottom of the chart. Down here where the cross touches the ground, that's growth. That's me. That's me experiencing the fact that God wants to change me. When I come to the cross, I need to come as a person who realizes Jesus had to die because who I was wasn't good enough for God. Jesus had to die to pay my price because who I was wasn't good enough for God. I needed to be cleansed. I needed to be forgiven. Someone else needed to take my place. And so because I need to be changed The fundamental idea of myself before God is that I need to grow. Whatever I was was not what I'm supposed to be. I need to grow. I need to develop. I need to change. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's hard. But the vertical relationship is I worship God and He grows me. I need to let Him do that. In the horizontal relationship, we're going to start with the word fellowship or community. The Bible word for that is sometimes translated fellowship and it's sometimes translated community. In the New Testament, it's this word that kind of means a household. Uh, You can kind of sometimes call it uh, family. That's another way of translating it. But the word community, we don't use just to refer to the people who live in the houses next to your house. We use the word community to refer to the group of people who choose to do life together. And God wants us to be people who live that way. We are told in Scripture that Jesus, when he dies, he didn't die just so that you could be saved. He died so that God could have a family. And we call that family the community of believers, the fellowship of believers. You'll hear those words interchangeable. And then the final Bible word that we use is the word ministry. And the word ministry is a strange word because we actually use that word in just a couple weeks when I file my taxes, I'm going to put down on the tax form that I am a minister, which is a ludicrous thing because the word ministry just means taking what you've been given and doing with it what you should. Like, that's why sometimes government officials are... are given a, something that is called a ministry. Uh, that's just the way it works. I mean, the word just means taking what you've been given and doing with it what you should. Ministry is when I administer the gifts that I've been given, administer the job that I've been given. I administer the role I've been given. I do it well. Ministry is for us the recognition that anytime God has given us a gift, it's because he has a job for that gift. And he needs that gift to flow through you in order for that gift to accomplish its job. And so ministry is our relationship with the world outside. It's also our relationship with each other and a little bit, but that's covered mostly by the word community. Ministry is mostly our focus of the world outside and how we relate to other people. And so those are our four Bible words, but let me give you the four metaphor words. And this isn't Captain Planet, this isn't uh, pagan mysticism, this isn't something crazy, it's just they're also in the Bible, they're metaphors in the Bible, and they're things that we use around here to help, help us vividly remember them. They're silly. If you haven't heard me talk about them yet, you might not like them, but I don't care because they will help you remember things. Okay, so here we go. The first metaphor is the metaphor of air. I love using this metaphor for God for two reasons. One... We need to remember that you can take away my clothing, my house, my car. You can take away my food and you can take away my water. And without any of those things, I will be able to survive for a moderate amount of time. 
but if you take away my air, we're done. I mean, that's just it. Without air, I'm unconscious in a few seconds, dead within a minute or two. And listen, air is the most important thing to us. And we have to get this idea that God, my relationship with God, is the most important thing in my life. There's another reason I like the word air here in Indiana. We understand what air is all about. Air is sometimes the thing that falls on your house and knocks a tree over into your house. Air is sometimes the thing that swirls around and will pick up a house and throw it somewhere else. Air is sometimes the thing that will get really dark and scary and shoot fire at you. Air in Indiana terrifies me. I mean, the air outside my house has sometimes been in, in formations that have made me cower in that little space between my bathroom door and the hallway wall with a mattress over my head. Air in Indiana freaks me out. And you know what? That's not a bad analogy for God. Sometimes looking up at the blue sky, you're like, what a great gift it is to be here. And sometimes you recognize that the power of the air around you is way more, way more than we can fathom. I like using the metaphor of air for God because it reminds us of these things. The metaphor for growth for me at the foot of the cross is earth. This reminds me of the fact that God formed humanity from the dust of the earth. This reminds me of the fact that God makes, makes my life like a potter makes a clay and makes a clay pot into a pot. And if he doesn't like the way the pot is shaping up, he can smash it back down and start it all over again. Clay, earth, dirt. This is the way that I think about my own life in relationship to God. And it is a valuable way to think about my life because, and this is amazing, by myself, I'm nothing but dust on the ground. But if God's hand gets on me and his breath gets in me, then I become a miracle. And every year I like saying that because it just highlights the fact that without God, I'm nothing. But with God, I am miraculous. And so I will joyfully be dirt in his hands because that miracle is worth it. And then... For the fellowship, for the community, we use the metaphor of fire, just because I like charcoal grilling. And you know that if you have a grill and it's a charcoal grill, or if you're camping and you've got a fire, you know, when you're done with the fire and you want it to die, you separate all the embers from each other. You separate the coals from each other. But when you really want it to get going, you bring all the wood together into one spot together and then all you need to do is light a piece of newspaper underneath it in your little cart your charcoal chimney and a whole pile of charcoal can light from just a tiny little bit of newspaper underneath it just because they were all together man it's so hard talking about the this metaphor when we are not all physically together but i just want to remind you that the holy spirit doesn't need to have two human beings sitting next to each other for him to exist the Holy Spirit is real. It's the Spirit of God who floats through the entire universe. And He is just as much with me right now as He is with you. Wherever, whenever you are, the Spirit of God dwells in each of us individually in such a way that He binds us together as His family. Just like coals catching fire in a chimney starter. Fire is the metaphor we use for the Holy Spirit's presence uniting the family of believers. And then the last metaphor is water. Water is the metaphor that we use for how we should respond to the world around us. And it is basically a reminder that we have something refreshing that we need to share with them. Our job is not to burn the world down. Our job is to put out the fires. Our job is to refresh the souls. Just this morning, I opened up my Bible app, and I noticed that the, the verse of the day is one of the verses we use in our membership covenant for this metaphor of water. It is from Proverbs, and it says, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes the hearts of others will himself be refreshed. It's a beautiful metaphor that God has made a promise of many, many years ago. 
The refreshment we want most is a a refreshment that happens when we refresh others. And so this is our cross diagram. It is also, if you do a little bit of graphic arts design design tweaking with it, it's also our logo. You know, there's a cross that kind of wraps around a little ball. You know, it's kind of where our logo comes from. But anyway, this is our basic idea for what this all is about as our church. We're just trying to live out these four basic biblical principles. Good relationship with God, good relationship with others. We're trying to do it in such a way that we remember it vibrantly every single day throughout our lives. And we do it by making specific commitments to each other. And so today, what I'm going to do for the remainder of our time is I'm going to read through our membership covenant. And our membership covenant shows up in two bits. There are four components, and each one of them is split into two. Because in our membership covenant, the first half is what we believe every Christian in any church tradition should be able to embrace. But then the second half of each statement is the specific commitment we are making to each other as a unique family, a unique expression of the church of Jesus in this world. And so the first half is the thing that applies to all Christians everywhere. The second half is what we are trying to do with each other. So here we go. There's a lot of words. If you have the Bible, if you have our app, uh, you can go ahead and open it up and you'll see this on our live event notes. I'll put them up on the screen here too, but we're just going to plow our way through. Here we go. The first principle says this, God is my heir. In every aspect of my life, God comes first. His word is my only authority. His son is my only salvation. His glory is my greatest desire. I give him the first of my every opportunity. Every single phrase in here is a phrase that I think should be true for any believer. Any believer should be able to say, God is number one in my life. And he's, I'm proving that God is number one in my life through these things. I'm putting his word, his son, his glory every one of those things above my own desires. Let me share with you this verse from John chapter 6. We haven't looked at it yet uh, this month, and it's not one of the standard verses I use for this core value in our church, but I figured I'd show it to you today. John chapter 6. It says, then they asked him, Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? This is a great question. Jesus, what do we have to do to be on God's good side? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Here's the thing. If you believe in Jesus, but never do what Jesus asks you to do, then you don't believe in Jesus. Because for those of us who understand what Jesus says about himself, he says that he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the coming King. He is God in the flesh, He is the great I am of the burning bush back in Moses' day, come to this earth to live, to die, to rise again. He is literally the Lord of the universe. And so if the Lord of the universe says, hey, I want you to do this, and you don't do it, you clearly don't believe the power that he holds. Those of us who believe in Jesus are the ones who live that way. That's why Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount would say, if you hear these words of mine and you actually do them, then you're like someone who's got a firm foundation. But it all begins with us believing in Jesus. And so I'm going to give you a few uh, words here. Uh, But before I do that, application, you know, easy, tangible words. Before I do that, I'm going to give you the long paragraph for the commitment we make to each other as church members, as a church family. It says this, Specifically, I've given my life over to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. The word here is repentance. That's me when I say I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. The second phrase, it says, I've followed him in the waters of baptism. The word here is baptism. I'm a person who has gone public with my faith in Jesus and told the people around me that I'm all in. That's a great metaphor. The reason why we dunk people in the baptism waters because people are all in. I I just love that metaphor. He says, I will submit my life to the mandates of the Bible. That's the third word, the Bible. I will stand up for God's honor, not my honor. I'm going to stand up for God's honor. That's the word worship we already talked about. And then I will invest the first portion of my time, talent, and treasures in the work of his kingdom. 
This statement that we ask each other to sign as we make our commitment, basically it can be summarized by these you know, five little words. Repentance, baptism, the Bible, worship, and giving. Now, I didn't say giving 10%. It's a biblical principle. But the commitment we're making to each other with this thing is just that God comes first. God's going to come first in my time. I'm going to give my time. God comes first in my talent. I'm going to give my talent. God comes first in my money. I'm going to give my money. God comes first in every aspect of my life. It's a principle where I simply say God comes first. So that's our air statement. It's part of our membership covenant. Then the second one is the earth statement. And sometimes, depending on the document that I print at the day that I print it, I sometimes mix up the earth one and the fire one, depending on whether or not I want to go vertical and then horizontal, or whether I want to go counterclockwise around the, around the, the cross diagram. Just go with me on it. It's okay. We're doing earth second today. Here it is. It says, God is creating me. He didn't just create me once. He's still working on it. I started as dust, but I'm becoming like Jesus. I rejoice in trials and hardships because Christ suffered for me, and I am a living sacrifice transformed by the truths of God. I believe 100% of Jesus' followers should be able to say this. In fact, I want to share with you a verse, a passage of Scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that illustrates the way Paul himself viewed this idea. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning that he recognized he himself was just a pile of wet mud that God was working on. Jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And then look at this. He said, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul knew that walking around the way Jesus would have him walk around included a life of pain and hardship. But he was okay with that because he was willing to carry death in his body so that he could experience the life, the resurrection life, of Jesus as well. In particular, Paul never wanted anyone to view him as the reason for whatever success he might have had. Paul always wanted people to see the power of God working through him. We want the same thing. I don't want to be a person who just automatically becomes this amazing person and people around me are like, wow, you're such a great person. I would much rather be a person who gets shaped by God into being something miraculous where then people say, wow, God is so good. God is so amazing. He took you and he made that? That's much more enthusiastic kind of thing that I would want to participate in. So specifically, as a family of believers together, we make this shared commitment. It says this specifically, let's put that next one up, I will pursue opportunities for spiritual growth. I will root out sin in my life through regular self-examination and confession of sin both to God and to accountability partners. That's one aspect of discomfort. And in all areas of uncertainty, I will submit first to the clear teaching of the Bible, then to the leaders God has placed over me, and finally, after prayer, to my own conscience. Listen, if you want to be a member of our church, if you want to participate in the life of our church, we expect the people in our church to be the kind of people who say, no, I don't want sin in my life. I will root it out and I will let other people root it out too. I will let someone else do some digging into my life. In fact, I'll be the first one to tell them about the dirt that's in there so they can help me get it out. We want to be the kind of people who say, I'm going to submit first to the clear teaching of Scripture, then to the leaders God has placed over me, and then, after I pray about it, finally to my own conscience. I say this every year. The saddest part of my life as a pastor is seeing a person make a commitment and then break it. Whether that's a marriage that ends in divorce whether that's a person who's made a, a decision to follow Jesus in baptism and then doesn't follow through, 
They made a decision to follow Jesus with their life and doesn't follow through. They made a commitment to be a member of the church and then fades away. There are all kinds of reasons for why people leave the commitments they've made. Some reasons are good. Some commitments are bad. But the thing that breaks my heart every year is that no matter how many times we've done this, no matter how many times we've done this commitment Sunday kind of thing, this membership renewal kind of thing, every single year someone eventually decides to put their own conscience above one of the other things here. Now, it's not a ton of people, but it's always someone. And the thing I want to ask you to do is to embrace a kind of thing that I am 100% convinced is the engine of spiritual growth. It's what Paul was talking about when he was talking about the hardships. It's what we've all experienced in certain parts of our lives where we have allowed ourselves to grow. It goes like this, summarized by four little words. It's hopeful, patient, and active endurance. It's a person who says, I don't know why I'm going through this thing, but I hope it's for the best. It's a person who says, I don't know why I'm still going through this thing, but I'm going to be patient waiting for the end to come of this problem. And I don't know how long this thing is going to last, but I'm going to be active in the middle of it. I'm not just going to wallow. I'm not just going to let the world happen to me. I'm going to be active about it. It's going to be hopeful. It's going to be patient. It's going to be active. And I will endure. Because here's the thing. Throughout Scripture, the promise is clear to us. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, rejoice because perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The growth God wants to do in our lives always involves a kind of hopeful, patient, active endurance. And I invite you to join in that relationship with us. I invite you to be a person who says this year, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm going to be hopeful about what God will do in my life through this church. I'm going to be patient even if I don't see the end result yet. I'm going to be active. I'll invest myself in the middle of it and I'm going to endure and I'm going to go through this commitment process in a way that gives God the opportunity to change me. Which leads me to our third commitment statement, the statement about us as a church being committed to each other in a family. It says this, God's family fuels my fire. The Spirit dwells in me, but His power is revealed in community. I intentionally prioritize Christian relationships because I have something to give and something to receive. This is the commitment that I think every single Christian needs to recognize, that God's Spirit is present in the individual, but His, his power works out in the relationships through community. And so we need to prioritize the Christian community, in some way, because we each have something to give and something to receive. Let me share with you this passage of Scripture from 1 John. It's amazing. It's one of the passages that's hard to teach, because as John writes it, he's kind of doing a little jumbled stream of consciousness sort of thing. So as I read it, you will see a few themes that kind of intertwine on each other. One is obedience, one is love, and one is the presence of the Spirit of God. Watch this. John says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. We already saw that, right? Jesus said, here's the command, believe in the Son, right? So John is echoing what he wrote earlier. And to love one another as he commanded us. See, if I'm going to believe in Jesus, I need to do what Jesus commanded me, which is to love one another. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. See, for John, these ideas cannot be separated. The idea of faith in Jesus, obedience to Jesus, loving one another in the family of God, and experiencing the presence of God are one ball. They are one thing. You, you, believe in Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, that leads to obedience, then that leads to love, then that leads to obedience, and then that leads to the Spirit's presence in our lives. It's God's way of moving in His family. 
In fact, I'll show you in 1 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite passages from 1 Corinthians says this, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That means that God says, I'm going to put my Spirit in each individual member of the church for the benefit of the people who aren't that person. I love that idea. The manifestation of the Spirit. That means His presence. His real presence is in me. Man, I I love the idea of the Spirit being manifest in me. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the common good, not my good. The way God always works is when He gives a gift to someone, He gives it to that person so that that person would pass that gift on to someone else. Gifts from God are always given so that they would be given. Because God is a giver, and He wants to give to givers. And so He gives me the Holy Spirit when you need what the Holy Spirit gives to me. And He gives you the Holy Spirit when I need what the Holy Spirit gives to you. He won't give me what I need unless He gives it through you. And He won't give you what you need unless He gives it through me or someone else. God does the Spirit work through each other. Now that's difficult though. Because just like the work of growth and change is painful and difficult, the work of experiencing the Spirit in a way that is different from how the Spirit works in me is very difficult. You see, how the Spirit works in me is different from how the Spirit works in you. But God put the Spirit in you because I need that. And God put the Spirit in me because you need this. And as a result, I will rarely resonate with the way the Spirit is working in you. And you will rarely resonate with the way the Spirit is working in me. Because we have to choose to be with each other. Let me share with you the specific statement that this leads us to. It says, specifically, I affirm the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and heed the guidance He gives through the counsel of others in this church. I will view this community as my spiritual family and offer my time, talent, and treasure here before serving or giving elsewhere. That's a a commitment that says, I'm going to open myself up to what the Spirit is going to do through other people in my life, and I'm going to open myself up to be what the Spirit is doing through me for the sake of others. Let's keep going. He says, I will prioritize. It says, I will prioritize the weekly gatherings for worship and join a small group. I will pray for and support my leaders, love my fellow believers, and vigorously defend the unity of this church. That just means I'm going to prioritize the opportunities I have to connect with someone else from this fellowship. Because if we make this commitment together, we are making a commitment to mutually grow, and we are making a commitment to mutually challenge, and we are making a commitment to mutually express the Holy Spirit of God. I can't wait to experience what the Spirit of God is going to do in my life through you. And I hope you feel the same. Four words to remember this are attend, give, join, and serve. Show up, give something, join something, and find a way to serve someone else. Simple words, but if you're wondering what it means to be a member of our church, it means the people who are doing this. It means the people who are doing these things. Now, attendance. I know you can't be here in person for at least the next couple of weeks, but I'll tell you this, at least comment. Let us know you're there. That helps me out a lot. Anyway, let's move on. The last core commitment is our water commitment, and it says this, I have the living water in me. I'll get to that in just a little bit. One of the most profound thoughts about the Christian life that I never learned when I was younger, but is something that I am absolutely convinced of today. Nonetheless, I have the living water in me. Infinite refreshment is mine in Christ, and I unlock it in me when I give it to others. I eagerly risk embarrassment to offer others the living water of Jesus. 
Let me show you this passage. It's something that Jesus said in the book of John. It's amazing to me. John chapter 7. It says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, this, by the way, was the festival of tabernacles, which had a very strong water symbolism in the Jewish culture. And so Jesus says this. It's amazing. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now pause there for just a minute. Pause it. Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. See? That sounds amazing. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Show up. I'll take care of it. But now, look how he promises to take care of it. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Whoa. Okay. I'm thirsty, so I go to Jesus for a drink. And because I've gone to Jesus, that shows that I have faith in him. That shows that I'm trusting him to be the source of my refreshment. So I come to Jesus. I put my faith in him. I put my faith in Jesus. And as a result, what happens to my faith inside me is that it turns into its own living water spring. Am I going to be thirsty tomorrow? See, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because if, if I have living water, rivers of living water, from my faith, then do I need to come back for another drink? Weirdly, Jesus says, you will have infinite water in you, welling up inside you, flowing out from you. And then we read the commentary John gives, where he says, by this Jesus meant the Spirit. Let's keep going. The Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But Jesus has been glorified. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended back into heaven. The Spirit has been given. You and I, therefore, are living in the age of the living one. Water. We are living in the age of the infinite refreshment. Our problem is not that we have, it is not that we need more water. Our problem is that we lock it up inside ourselves. You see, if I have a living water spring inside me and I keep the floodgates closed, there's nothing that can happen inside there except for the pressure to build. And then I'm like, well, what's so wrong? What's, what's the problem in my life? Why am I not feeling the refreshment or the experience of God in my life? Why am I not? Ex- and we say, I just need to go back to Jesus for another drink. And we go back and, and you go back enough times and it's like it's starting to feel a little bit old. It's, start, it doesn't, it's not the same as it was before. And, and the problem is really that you're just not thirsty. The problem is that you have too much water. It's time for you to start refreshing others. Our whole understanding of this water metaphor is the recognition that Jesus doesn't say, I have the living water you need to keep coming back to. Jesus says, I have the living water and I'll give it to you also. And so, as a family of believers together, we want to make this commitment. A commitment that says specifically, I employ everything I am and everything I have for the benefit of others. I'm going to be one of those people who spills all of my living water out to other people around me for the benefit of others beginning in this church and extending to the world around me. To help others find full life in Christ, I will work to serve them, befriend them, share my faith with them, invite them to join me in this church and help them know the gospel so they too can experience the life I've been given. I will rely on God to refresh me as I strive to refresh others. See, that's the promise Jesus makes. Jesus makes the promise that he will provide the living water. It'll flow from within you. It's the Spirit himself at work. Our job is just to not hold it in. Our job is just to let it flow to the world around us. And he can replenish. I use this metaphor a lot A lot of times people think of their lives as a bucket. We need to get our buckets filled. But the problem is our buckets are leaky. 
And so we'll, we'll leak and we need to keep coming back to the source to keep getting filled. I've heard this metaphor in churches time and time again. You go through the week, your bucket leaks, and then you need to come back for another refill, refill in your God bucket so that you show up at church and God can fill up your bucket again and then you can go back out in the world and, and you can, you know, try to survive in the world while your bucket is all leaky. And it's the question that I've always wondered is why would God give us such terrible buckets? If he wanted us to be filled with him all the time, why would he give us such terrible buckets? And suddenly it hit me a number of years ago. The problem is not that God gives us terrible buckets. The problem is God never intended for us to be buckets to begin with. I believe God made us to be hoses. And the problem with a hose is that it's never designed to hold the water to begin with. I've a couple times left the hose attached to the side of my house in the middle of winter, and it just ends up destroying the hose. It makes the faucet leak because it freezes. Hoses were not meant to hold water. They were meant to deliver water. Listen, here's the thing. I want us to be people who this year collectively, collectively realize that we can keep giving because God has designed us that way. He'll refresh us as we refresh others. We're not the buckets to hold the presence of God. We're the conduits to share the presence of God. So as I close today, I want to let you know that in the coming weeks, we're going to go through a membership class that goes through some of these things in more detail and a couple other practical things too. So I encourage you to join that. I encourage you to prepare your hearts for our Commitment Sunday. I'll be making this membership covenant available on our website for the next couple of weeks so you can take a look at it in more detail. Read the verses that are associated with it. Read some of the blog posts that I've made over the past couple of years about the same thing. And we're going to prepare our hearts for Commitment Sunday coming up the first Sunday in March. But I tell you what, what I care about the most is that I'm a person who lives this way this year. And that you're a person who lives this way this year. And that together we'll be a church of people who live this way this year. And I'm convinced if we live this way this year, God is going to get glorified. And we'll get the joy of experiencing His glory as He is being glorified in this world, including in Lafayette, Indiana. I'm excited about all that. I'm excited about the journey we get to go on together. And so... Next week, I'll invite you to come back live stream only for next week at least, probably two more weeks. I'm going to start a brand new series of messages. We're going to go through First and Second Samuel. Um, tentatively, I'm calling it The Pursuit. You'll see why next week. But uh, we'll start with First Samuel next week if you want to read into it, get a little head start in it. And then in a few moments after I say a closing prayer, we're going to, Jen and I are going to start a Zoom session here, and we'd love to get a chance to pray with you, hang out with you for at least a little bit, maybe see some of your snowdrift photos. But let me pray for you, let me pray for us as we ask God to solidify these commitments in our lives. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you, and His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.